Hello followers, Fittith22 here. If you enjoyed this story and are craving more from this author, I implore you to check out his novel. It can be found in the description below. You know the feeling you get when something just isn't right? That feeling of some unseen eye crawling over your body, making a shiver creep up your spine and goosebumps prickle up your arms. That feeling of dread as the primal lizard voice screams in the back of your deepest thoughts. Danger. Danger. Proceed no further. Sure you know it. Everyone has experienced it a time or two. We're trained from a young age that the monster in the closet isn't real, that nothing is in our bed, and the shadows on the walls are our minds playing tricks on us. Unlike hunger or our need for oxygen, the something's-off feeling is one our species purposely dampens. We're taught to seek out the logical reason, to assume we're paranoid and laugh it off. The truth is, the feeling is a survival instinct. And sometimes, something just isn't right. The lizard voice was blaring, clawing at my brain as my car's headlights sliced to the darkness and fell upon the weathered wooden sign. Faint white letters read, Welcome to Cedar Hollow. The planks of wood making up the sign were an ashy gray, and someone had clearly taken pot shots at the unkempt monument. Yes, as we neared the roadside sign, overgrown with weeds and its forbidding letters, my lizard voice was begging. Alas, I'd been trained so well that I chalked my bad feelings up to the late hour and the fact that our GPS had lost signal miles before, not to mention our phones were useless with their own no-signal messages. Good old Appalachia. That's weird, the bookish young woman riding shotgun uttered as she trailed her index finger along the Accordion map. What is it? I asked, keeping my eyes on the road. Cedar Hollow isn't on the map, she spoke, moving her index finger to the bridge of her nose while she pushed up her stylish glasses. Well, baby, the map is new-ish. A recent. But West Virginia isn't like Florida. Hills and valleys galore, and I wouldn't be surprised if some places just got forgotten out here. Forgotten. Poor choice of words, as they did nothing to assuage my discomfort, and I could tell that Jordan's unease was just as palpable as she folded the map and crossed her slender arms over her university sweatshirt. Perhaps her own lizard voice was hissing. I tossed a glance her way as we passed the ancient sign, autumn leaves blowing around our tires, fluttering down in the darkness behind us as we traversed the winding road. How you doing? I asked her. She turned her eyes from the dense woods outside of the passenger window towards me. She truly was stunning in an unconventional way. With one hand, she pushed the shaggy, shoulder-length mahogany hair behind her ear and looked nervously at me with amber eyes. She took a deep, wavering breath before speaking. My parents aren't racist. She started, but was cut off by my sigh. Come on, Jord. You said you'd tell them. 
I got out before the petite girl interrupted. I know I did. And I tried, Ben. I just don't know how to bring it up. She said, sounding sincerely apologetic. What's wrong with, hey, mom and dad, the guys supporting me through this tragedy and driving me all the way to Delaware, who I've been dating for the last year, happens to be black? I said, slyly grinning as I gave her a side-eyed look. My dorkiness apparently shining through as she cracked a smile. I really am sorry, Ben, she said softly through her grin. All good, baby. If they don't like me, it's whatever, as long as you do. My words oozed cheese. Besides, we may not even make the funeral. I have no clue where we're at, I added. My bad news seemed insignificant compared to hers, so I was confident I would stay out of the doghouse. The endless forest that surrounded us all but blocked out any light from the sky, and the moonbeams that did manage to cut through the foliage made the trees look skeletal, sinister. Even the pines looked like they were watching with an unnatural amount of glowing eyes as we traveled the barren road. Again, that primal voice did its best to reach me, but I told it that those weren't eyes. Of course they weren't. Logic said that those pinholes of glowing light were nothing more than the moon peeking through the branches. Nothing more. Hey. Jordan said, tearing me from my thoughts. What's that? She squinted behind her glasses and pressed a finger against the windshield. Uh, some kind of sign, maybe? I offered, looking at the blue glow in the sky that peered back at us through the branches. Oh my god, can we stop? I have got to pee, and we should call mom and dad, uh, let them know where we are. Jordan spoke, a certain chirp of relief in her voice. I suppose signs of society had brought down her stress level. Not mine. It was 2 a.m. and we were deep in a West Virginia hollow. Uh, what business out in the middle of nowhere was open? Maybe you can tell them you're finally bringing a black man to their nephew's funeral? I asked in a scalding tone. Suck it, she returned, rolling her lovely eyes. No further words were exchanged between us as we closed the distance to the glowing light. As the trees became less dense, their naked branches parted. The pole sign became clearer. A faint white glow emanated from the sign, welcoming us with blue cartoon letters to the small gas station between the road and the tree line. It was literally the only building we've seen for miles, and its very existence felt off. Gas her up. I read the Marquis's words and followed it with a long, exacerbated sigh as I pulled the car next to the lone pump beneath the canopy, connected to the small mart. Jordan groaned at the hillbilly name of the service station before asking, Are they open, you think? With a bit more hesitance in her words, her lizard voice must have been whispering. Lights on inside, I said throwing the car into park and gesturing with my head towards the illuminated frosted glass door that read, Welcome. And look, I finished by pointing to the only other vehicle in the modest parking lot. It sat catty-cornered in a space to the right of the building's entrance, a deep red sports car with tinted windows and a decal on the back, reading, It's a way of life, 
next to a graphic of a palm with a ring finger tucked under. The Shocker. Great. Maybe Chad in the douchemobile can give us directions to the nearest rave. Jordan huffed. You can stay here if you want. I offered as I opened the door. Cool night air tickled the flesh of my neck, and the sounds of nature filled my ears. Insects chirping, owls hooting. Then came the smell. Sulfury, burning, the vague hint of roadkill. Yeah, no thanks, she said. She still didn't move to open her door until I'd exited and crossed the vehicle and stood nearby. That off feeling was in full force as I stood there waiting for my girlfriend. I felt watched, but not only that, I felt vulnerable, like an ant beneath a magnifying glass under the hot summer sun. I felt exposed. The light breeze surrounding me caused it to feel as if something were softly brushing against the left side of my face, and the sound of breaking twigs and crushing leaves unsettled me. I wasted no time grabbing Jordan's hand and leading her past the pump, toward the glowing doorway. I had to force myself to keep my cool, to tell myself that I was just being paranoid, as we crossed the small parking lot hand in hand. There was something about our footfalls, the sound and feel like we were walking through something sticky, and more than once I'd glanced down to verify that the asphalt was simply that. In moments, we reached the lit door, the inside of the store obscured by the frosted glass. I placed my free hand on the handle, but before I could open it, Jordan spoke. Ben, this feels bad, she whispered squeezing my hand and shifting her weight between her feet. I tried reassuring her with a smile, to tell her with my eyes that everything was okay, but the truth is that we were both feeling that discomfort. But moreover, I didn't want to walk back to the car and drive further into the unknown without some semblance of a plan. Who knows how far we'd have to drive before another opportunity presented itself. It was my job as boyfriend to protect Jordan, and at the time, I felt the best way to do that was to protect a false bravado, to convey to her that I'd keep her safe. I tugged on the door's handle, and was actually a bit surprised when it opened with no resistance, a little jingle accompanying the motion. I stepped inside with Jordan following closely. The place looked... normal. Well, normal for Appalachian backwoods. Drab, mustard-colored wallpaper lined the shop, and a couple of mounted buckheads flanked a stuffed bobcat above a door directly in front of us. The male and female stick figures adorning said door marked it as a unisex restroom. Jordan let out a relieved sigh and released my hand before pushing past me and making a beeline for the door. I couldn't help but snicker and roll my eyes as I watched the petite girl scurry doing that dance where you're on the verge of bursting. She disappeared into the room a second later, and I took a moment to observe the convenience store. To my right, I saw a small refrigerated cooler housing a variety of beverages, and between where I stood and the restroom was a couple of rows of products. Chips, candy, knickknacks. They made the small building feel cramped. Then there was the checkout counter to my immediate left, and the small cigarette display behind it. No one was manning it, 
and I took note of what appeared to be a tiny office behind the desk. I took a few steps closer to the counter and saw that sitting upon its surface was a silver bell. The kind you'd see at a hotel. Oh god, it's always awkward when you have to hit one of those things. You feel so, I don't know, needy, I guess. I hesitated for a second before placing an open palm over the device and giving the bell a soft slap. A sharp ding reverberated through the small store, and I immediately pinched the metal bulb, silencing it. No sooner than I had done that, a soft shuffling noise emanated from the office. Hey, uh, sorry, do you guys have a phone? Uh, like a house phone, uh, maybe a payphone? I asked before raising my hands and taking a step backwards as a figure appeared in the doorway. My brain felt as if it were short-circuiting, trying to rationalize what I was seeing. Surely this person had been in some kind of horrific accident, and my mother's voice filled my head. You shouldn't stare, Benjamin. You shouldn't stare at people who look different. Her words echoed through my brain, but god damn if I wasn't doing just that. I scolded myself as the disfigured visage jerkily lurched from the office towards the register. No, no, I wasn't being rude. My wide eyes were justified. There was no doubt that the thing I was seeing beyond the counter wasn't human. Jordan, I cried out in shock as the naked, sexless creature lumbered to a stop behind the register. The thing craned its bald head upward and locked its electric blue eyes onto mine. Its breast slowly rose and sank as it hissed raspy breasts through a vacant smile. Thick strands of saliva hung from its unnaturally wrinkled skin and dripped down its twisted, leathery visage. At first I thought it was lacking arms, but quickly realized that what I'd mistaken for breasts were its limbs. They were crossed across its chest like an unruly mental patient. The caveat was that it wore no straitjacket. Its arms resided beneath its horrific dermis, and I could tell from its previously jerky, twitchy gait that something was very, very wrong with the thing. What the fuck, man? I muttered anxiously before calling out again. Jordan! There was no response from my girlfriend, but the pale, hairless, wrinkled thing began to cough. It hacked softly, its empty smile never faltering, its gaze never leaving my eyes. From its gullet flew a jet-black glob of phlegm, which landed with a splatter on the counter. The bile pulsated as it sat there, and I had to stifle a gag. Feed. The thing spoke in a low, gravelly voice. My heart was racing, and a cold sweat had formed on my brow. What? I sputtered. Feed. The thing insisted. It then proceeded in a swift motion to ram its head into the counter, hard enough for a loud cracking sound to be heard, even over the silver bell's ding. I flinched and felt my stomach turn as the thing rose back up and I saw that the bell had lodged itself into one of the creature's eyes. But even that didn't dissuade the thing's awful smile. Without hesitation, it again smashed its face on the counter, setting off another ding, and I saw that the fluorescent lights above us were flickering. I began screaming as the bashing, the dings, and flickering lights continued. 
The monster's face was becoming more and more caved in as the beast rapidly mutilated itself before me. The same black substance it had coughed out sprayed from its cracked skull as the thing rapidly jerked its head up and then back down. By the sixth round, it stopped, and the lights went out completely. Thankfully, I wasn't left in the dark with the crater-like face of the being. A soft, flickering orange glow danced across the walls like the light of a campfire, but I saw no flame. I did, however, see that the place had changed significantly. The cigarette display behind the creature was smashed out and stripped of all products. Likewise, the knickknacks displayed were similarly raided. Only rusty skeletons of the racks remained. The mustard-colored wallpaper was faded, peeling, and wore an abundant amount of graffiti tags. There were several juvenile phrases covering the walls, but one repeated set of words stood out, as it was much larger and scrawled in frantic black letters. Beware, Valmardu. A muffled yelp came from behind me as the oily substance began to pour from the creature's shattered face like a faucet. I whipped around and saw that the refrigerator behind me no longer held beverages, but a blood-stained, wriggling burlap bag, which hung suspended behind the glass. My initial thought was that it was a puppy squirming and whimpering inside. The bag could hold a small dog, and the panicked movements against the fabric could easily have belonged to four limbs. Whatever it was, it was in enormous pain, and instinctively I wanted to help, but that thought was quickly dispelled when I heard the restroom door clatter against the back wall. Ben! Jordan shouted as she struggled to pull her jeans over her thighs without stopping her run. She nearly fell, but managed to keep her footing as she bounded over one of the deer heads that had decorated the wall, now residing on the floor. She was a few feet from me when she got her pants up, and was prepared to dive into my open arms when she saw the horrible creature standing stoically behind the counter. A shrill screech escaped her as she skidded to a stop, and I saw that her legs were wobbly. That wasn't all, either. Blood was streaked across her cheek, mouth, and chin, and her pants and the hem of her sweatshirt were damp with the oil-like substance. Her wide, terrified eyes immediately began to sob. We gotta go, baby. Come on, I said, stepping towards her and grasping her hand. I turned us to face the frosted glass of the entrance door and practically dragged her towards it. The bloody bag cried out another volley of whimpers as we crossed the coolers, drawing a yelp from Jordan and sending a jolt through me. What's in there, Ben? Jordan shouted through her tears. I didn't answer. Instead, I snaked my fingers around the door's handle and jerked it open. The little jingle of its bell rang out, and seemed to signal something, for as soon as the sound filled my ears, an eerie, staticky voice became to come from Craterface's gullet, unimpeded by the inky crude pouring from its gaping hole. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong, and Edwin Aldrin know that there is no hope for their recovery. Craterface croaked out. Its words sounded as if they were being produced by an antique TV rather than a monstrosity. What struck me the most, though, was that I recognized the voice, that jowly mix of nasally and deep. I'm a bit of a history buff, and Nixon's voice was easily placed. The speech, however, 
was not. In fact, it made no sense at all. I threw a glance over my shoulder. Beyond the wet, wide eyes of my girlfriend, I saw the rapidly expanding pool of murky black liquid had poured over the counter's edge, and as it continued to grow there on the floor, I could make out that the head and arms of a new figure, forming in the crude, reached upwards, seeming to pull itself from the pool. A jet black being, with no defining features. I could hardly stand to look at the thing as it clawed at the air. I turned and pulled Jordan through the open door, turned again and yanked the door closed behind us. As soon as it shut, the frosted glass went dark, the fiery hue dying immediately, leaving us in only the faint light of the moon high above. Ben? I heard Jordan whimper softly as I felt her release my hand. As soon as I turned away from the horrible building, I saw why. She brought both hands to her blood-smeared mouth to stifle her cries. The parking lot was coated in a sticky layer of blood, the crimson substance glimmering in the moonlight. I saw that the marquee, the sign that had beckoned us like a bug sapper, was no longer lit. In fact, it was in a state of despair, cracked, pieces broken free of the plastic dome, which itself was stained yellow. Following the rusted post with my eyes, I saw that its base was overgrown with flora. Most upsetting, though, was the weathered skeleton wearing tattered clothes that swayed in the light breeze, held up by the noose hanging from the damaged sign. The red sports car parked near us showed signs of rapid aging, too, taking on a more pink tone between the rust spots that spattered its body. The tires were torn and the windows smashed out, but my eyes were drawn to the open driver door, where a trail of blood led from the seat all the way through the parking lot, where it stopped abruptly below another hanging figure affixed to the canopy just beyond the ruined gas pump. It was less rotted, maintaining a few springs of hair and some patches of skin on the skull. It also wore a red jacket emblazoned with the sports car's logo. I shivered when I realized that the body of the man was swaying quite near my car, and remembered the horrible way my face had felt something brush by as I looked at the man's only remaining leg, the foot of which dangled exactly where I'd stood as I waited for Jordan to exit our vehicle. The skin of my face crawled, but the horror was far from over. I could see that the tires of my own vehicle had been shredded. The hood stood open, as did the passenger door. There, sitting in my car with his legs hanging out, was a thin man. He wore an old pair of overalls, and nothing else, save for an old, dirty bandana holding his greasy hair back. A wispy, patchy beard covered his cheeks. He was using a large hunting knife to pick at his fingernails while he stared at us. With one of his eyes staring at us, the other wandered, looking up and outward. What do you think, Maggie? Food or string him up? I heard him say in the thickest country accent one could imagine. His sinister smile revealed that most of his crooked teeth had rotted away. Mama's getting tired, squirrel. Another voice chimed in from our right. The accent was just as thick, but with a noticeable impediment. I jerked my head to the direction of the new sound while Jordan continued to sob. My eyes caught the silhouette of a stick-thin woman rounding the side of the convenience store. 
She carried with her a long-handled axe, which she allowed to drag across the asphalt as she slowly stepped towards us. The sound of the steel axe head scraping against the blacktop was chilling. Baby might not like dark meat, though. She finished with a light giggle. As she stepped closer, the moonlight illuminated her face, and I saw that she had a cleft lip and palate that rose into her left nostril, leaving half of her nose nothing more than a black hole. Suddenly, the odd speech pattern made sense. I put myself between the approaching woman and my hysterical girlfriend, raising my hands in a non-threatening way, and foolishly tried to reason with the hillbillies. Listen to me. There's something in this store, and we all have to go right now. We all need to get away from here. I spoke calmly, fully aware that the duo meant to do us harm, but praying my words might reach them on a human level. Now listen here, boy. Round these parts, your kind don't speak to our women. The man in my car spat as he stood, extending his arm and pointing his knife at me. Get him, Cliff. He finished. Suddenly... A third member of the posse made themselves known. The man called Cliff had apparently been perched on the roof of the small building, as he came down on my back like a wild animal, pouncing its prey, knocking Jordan to the ground. I, too, was forced to the ground under the man's weight, my face connecting with the bloody asphalt, scraping my flesh and sending my head swirling. I fought to maintain consciousness as my eyes rolled and my head swam. I focused on Jordan's hysteric screaming and begged any god that would listen for help. In my confusion, I barely registered the fact that I was being dragged. All sound began to fade, and then blackness. I couldn't have been out long. When I came to, I was laying on my back, staring up at the swaying man in the red jacket. My hands bound with a rope in front of me. I heard Jordan screaming and noticed the second rope being lowered through the canopy above. My rope. Wakey, wakey, said the man who'd been sitting in my car as he poked his head into view. I could smell his putrid breath as he spoke. That good, Bubba? A man called down from the canopy. I realized that it had to be Cliff. Little bit lower. My captor called back up and I saw the noose drop another foot. There you go. It was then that I saw Jordan. She'd been forced to her knees as well, held in place by the wooden axe handle pressed against her throat. Her hands were also bound, and I saw that her glasses were no longer on her face. Her terrified expression, along with the blood across her lower face, gave her such a ghastly look. I could hear her gasps and whimpers, and I hated myself for being so powerless. Then something clicked in my head that made everything so much worse. Food or string em up, Bubba had asked. I only saw one noose. You taking your trophy? You taking your trophy this time, Maggie? Bubba called to the deformed girl holding Jordan hostage. They say his kind have big ones, he added. Guess we'll find out, Maggie spoke gleefully, eyeing my crotch. Just beyond her, I saw that Cliff was scaling down the canopy's outside post with ease. He seemed more than adequate at climbing, and made it to the ground quickly. Something about his movements seemed spider-like. The noose swayed inches from my face, and Cliff held the slack end of the rope, 
I watched as Bubba crossed the small gap to Jordan, handing his knife to Maggie and taking her place as Jordan's captor. He knelt beside my girlfriend and ran his vile tongue up her cheek, apparently not put off by the blood. You're gonna be delicious, and after, I'm gonna have fun with what's left. I heard him mutter as he groped Jordan's breast before standing again, axe handle returning to her throat. First, let's watch. Maggie was approaching me in some weird stride that was a hybrid of seductive and lanky. She playfully wagged the knife in front of her malformed face. Don't worry, you won't have to live without it for long, she uttered as she knelt before me and trailed the knife along my inner thigh. In an instant, the parking lot was flooded by a bright blinding light. My eyes reflexively squeezed shut as I was in the direct path of the powerful beam. A thunderous boom ripped through the air and I forced my eyes to open a hair. I saw that Maggie had stood and her back was to me. Beyond her I saw the silhouette of my kneeling girlfriend and above her I watched as the outline of Bubba's head limply fell to the ground. Jordan began to scream as the axe clattered on the asphalt in front of her. Bubba! Maggie's own scream joined the symphony. You killed him! She yelled out aggressively. Jordan, run! I shouted, climbing to my feet, and knocked Maggie to the ground as I pushed past her. Motherfucker! I heard the downed girl mutter as I stumbled around in the bright light. Thankfully, the more powerful beam suddenly vanished, and I was able to see much better after a second. The two headlight beams that illuminated the parking lot were much more tolerable, and I saw that Jordan was quivering, but managed to get to her feet as well. They're coming with me. A voice, an authoritative one, boomed. I saw the figure standing next to the new car, a massive man, easily seven feet tall and built like a mountain. Pieces started to fall into place, the huge man's tall outfit, his trooper hat and the shiny brass badge on his chest, the dome on top of his cruiser. A wave of relief washed over me. Jordan, he's a cop! I shouted to my girlfriend as I neared him. She seemed to not comprehend my words, though. Panic in her amber eyes. I reached her, and using my roped hands, urged her towards the gigantic man. She didn't fight me, and wordlessness followed my suggestion. The cop never took his eyes or his gun off the rednecks, even as he opened the back door of his cruiser. Get in, he told us flatly, and we did without hesitation. He closed the door behind us, and I frantically began trying to untie Jordan's binds. Mama needs to eat, I heard Maggie shout viciously at the cop while Cliff helped her to her feet. Plenty of food right there. The cop shot back, jerking his head towards the decapitated body of Bubba. I've told you people to stay out of Almardu's way. Starving ain't a bad way to go, he added sternly as he climbed into his driver's seat. His weight caused the left portion of the car to sink noticeably. He tossed the enormous cannon nonchalantly in the passenger's seat and threw the car into reverse. As we backed away, I saw the remaining two hicks glaring at us fiercely. Maggie, who had retrieved her axe, held the weapon out threateningly. 
The officer continued his backwards drive as I freed Jordan's hands, and she began working on my binds. He then flipped the car's orientation with an abrupt U-turn, stomped on the gas, and suddenly, the cruiser began speeding into the darkness. Welcome to Cedar Hollow, he said, without looking back at us.